Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Marissa Sires. Marissa is a wickedly sharp product leader with over 13 years of experience across client services and product management, nine of which have been in leadership positions. She is an expert in B2B to C platforms and is currently the VP of product at BuildingLink, a leader in property management software that helps to provide superior living experiences for over 2 million residents worldwide. Marissa has also been the VP and Global Head of Product and Experience for CBRE's HANA brand of flexible workspaces, as well as Head of Product and Customer Experience at Rally Bus Corp. But it was her time at Gigya, the identity management platform, that provided her with the foundation for her product leadership skills. It was there that Marissa rapidly rose to VP of Product in just four short years, leading a globally distributed team to create the number one product in the customer identity and access management space. The company was sold in 2017 to SAP for 350 million US dollars. Marissa is a regular speaker on podcasts, panels, and conferences. In 2020, she delivered an excellent keynote at the Chief Innovation Officer Summit called Shifting Yourself and Your Organization to an Innovation Mindset. She is also a strong voice and helping hand for women in technology, mentoring other women through One Up, One Down, Built by Girls, and Power to Fly. And it's my pleasure to welcome her to speak with us today. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a very comprehensive overview. Really appreciate that. Well, it's always good to give people listening a sense of just the caliber of the, the people, and in this case, you that uh, that I'm interviewing. And I, I really um, was curious after doing a bit of research before this conversation to find that you have a BA in comparative <laughs> literature for, from Columbia in New York, and you are a self-described polyglot, which is something I didn't actually know what that was. But for people that are listening, that's someone uh, who can speak or use several languages. And I believe in your case, that's English, Chinese, French, German, and Spanish. That's a lot of languages. When when did you develop this love for language? Uh, yeah, I feel like that's quite, quite overstated, but uh, I do know <laughs> a bit of all of those. Um, I think it started when I was a kid. Uh, the middle school that I went to had a program called World of Languages where we did 10 weeks in each of four different languages. I think it was Spanish, French, German, and Japanese. Uh, and I actually thought my high school language was going to be Japanese, but then the teacher left. So I ended up with Spanish, which is uh, easier, more common, but also more useful. And then in college, at studying comparative literature, we actually had to study two different languages. Uh, I studied abroad in Germany for a month and then took up German, which I was much better at the month that I lived there than even when I went back to school and continued to study it. And then French and Chinese actually, uh, well, my husband is Chinese and I picked up, I could order food long before I could do anything else in Chinese, but primarily learned French and Chinese on Duolingo. And what is it about language that you love so much? That is a good question. I, I really like traveling. I like being in different countries. I like being in different cultures. I like being able to interact in the language of 
the the people who live there and who are from there, um, often to my detriment because my language skills are not as as good as I might like them to be. Uh, so you know, lots of times getting lost on your way to the bathroom, but it really is just that love of travel and food and, and being abroad. I think that that drove me to languages. I understand that when you were at Giga, the team, as I mentioned in your introduction, was a distributed team, and you were largely managing. Uh, the team from New York, you know, what, um, if any, uh, benefit was this love of language and the way that you're able to interact with people from other cultures? Well, funnily enough, the majority of the team that I was managing was in Israel. I did go to Hebrew school growing up, so I have the ability to read Hebrew characters, but I cannot understand anything. So I was able to, you know, play games with my team that I could actually understand certain things. And I actually did do Duolingo Hebrew for a while while I was working there. Uh, but I think it is this, at the time that I was studying on Duolingo and texting people in Hebrew and, you know, added the keyboard on my phone and everything. Uh, I think even that act of trying to come to their side, they're so used to operating in English in order to do business. And it's very rare that somebody is coming to them and, and trying to, to learn Hebrew and speak Hebrew and engage with them. So I, I think I, I won a lot of points from that perspective. Yeah, it certainly sounds like you would have. And I suppose it's a um, quite an important thing these days to be mindful that English is, is, is often not the primary language of many of the people in technology that we're working with. Mm -hmm. So it's great that you were able to do that for your team. Mm -hmm. The, the fascinating thing about product and the, the people that I speak to in product is that there appears to be no sort of standard track for how people arrive in a career in product. You know, it's not like you when you go to college and you're studying accounting and then you sit your CPA and then all of a sudden you're an accountant. So you've gone from comparative literature to being mm -hmm. VP of product for, you know, a successful Silicon Valley startup and several organizations since. And you did that all within seven years of leaving college. Was this always part of the plan, this career track? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, when I was in school, being a comparative literature major, I actually part of my uh, how I looked for jobs was where can I use my Spanish? But I was in book publishing, a couple of internships. I did a journalism internship and I just didn't love it. I didn't get excited about it. it. It just really didn't feel like it was for me. And then my senior year of school, I found a internship at a local startup here in New York City and I just went for it. And I was working there my last semester. I stayed on after I graduated. At that point, I was doing customer support. Uh, both It was a multi-sided platform. So we had tourists on the one side and then people selling tours and uh, different trips and leisure activities on the other side. And so I was customer support for the tourists and then also supporting uh, the providers that we worked with. And somehow mm. while I was there, I got exposed to search engine marketing, uh, very minor in a very minor way, but I thought it was so interesting at that time. I wasn't interested in marketing, but this idea behind search and what Google was doing with uh, the, the paid results. And I somehow decided I was moving to Silicon Valley and that was what I was going to do. And so that's how I got to Silicon Valley Tech from, from New York Tech. Obviously now I'm, I'm back in New York Tech. Uh, and it was at that company where I started off entry-level search marketing specialist, worked my way up to account manager, but I was the account manager on a beta rollout for our display advertising, moving from search advertising to display banners. And that was my first taste of product. And I think at that point, I knew that was eventually I was going to find my way into a dedicated product role. And what was it? And you said you knew. What was, what was it that you realized? What was that moment? 
You know, I think it was this ability when you're an account manager or, or now a customer success manager, I think would be a, a more appropriate title, but you are, you are working with customers and you are working within the confines of the product that you have available to you. So you know the product in and out, you, you know your customer, you figure out the best way for your customer to use your product. But if the product falls short, then you're stuck. You, you have your product team, you work with your product team, of course, but when you're in product, you actually have the agency to, to make the change that you want to see. Now, I'm curious because you did come from that customer success management background, but you also come from a non-technical background. Mm -hmm. What advantages or disadvantages have you experienced moving into the product world, particularly for in, in a tech organization, uh, having that background? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think at the time that I moved into product, which was around 2012, it was much more frequent that product managers came from software backgrounds. So it was a little bit even weirder for me to, to move into product. Um, and so the first kind of hurdle is, are you technical enough? And so being able to speak to engineers, understand what engineers were saying that they didn't feel like it was going to take three hours to get me onto the same page enough to work with them and engage with them uh, was a really big starting point. Because if I, if I couldn't win them over that I could do what I needed to do, then I was stuck from the beginning. Mm. Um, but I think also as a customer service manager, I had, you know, I would take bugs that were coming through as far as I could and really get into, you know, the JavaScript console and those sorts of things. And so uh, had engaged a lot with our support engineering in order to segue to working with our, our actual application engineers. Uh, mm. I think today, to your point, uh, coming from client services, customer success, account management uh, is much more prevalent path coming from data science or design or marketing. You know, there's, I think any, any organization you go into, there's not going to be just one or two or even three paths that, that brought people into the product org. Mm. So just fast forwarding a bit now to 2019, you joined CBRE's premium office space brand, HANA, mm -hmm. as the VP of global and global head of product and experience and innovation. And a year later, COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And from, from the outside in perspective, that decimated commercial the commercial property sector in particular, mm -hmm. um, shared spaces. What was that experience like for you happening so soon after joining? Uh, great question. Uh, yeah, HANA is a very interesting experience, not least of all because it was the first time that I worked for a company that was not a technology company. The, mm. the product was the office space and the technology was ancillary and supporting of that experience. So I think even from day one, uh, my experience at HANA was much unlike anything I had ever done before. Uh, but then, yeah, COVID hit and the, the organization kind of split in two. You know, there are the folks that are all dealing with returning to work, which it's funny to think that back in the beginning, we thought that, you know, maybe it'd be a couple of months. Um, and then everybody else who's supporting the business. Um, and, and then I actually got laid off. So, you know, COVID hit in March, I was laid off in May. Um, and it was, you know, in the first round, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't surprising because of, mm. to your point, like nobody knew what the future of commercial was going to be. HANA was still very new. We only had a couple of open locations. Um, so it was all like kind of very surreal at the time. But I think everything that I do now in terms of uh, podcasts and talking at conferences and posting on LinkedIn all came from, you know, that time that I had last summer. So it's a blessing, guys, I think. 
That's really interesting, especially now because we've all had a bit of distance since everything started happening in February and March of last year. So you mentioned like all your podcasting and your contributions on LinkedIn. That's all come as a result of that. What was it about that experience now that you've had some time to reflect on it that uh, that you learned about yourself and that has led to this action that you've now taken? Um, so I also, uh, toward the end of 2019, joined an organization called Chief uh, that was founded here in New York and now exists in other cities, but it's all about uh, networking for executive women um, and getting a seat at the table or creating your own table. Mm -hmm. And through that, there was a Slack channel or uh, a Slack workspace and people were just posting, you know, people were posting a lot, engaging, uh, Chief was quite new and um, I just made a decision to say yes to everything. And so the the one thing that actually stands out the most in my mind was uh, there was a woman who was creating a blog uh, about where we would travel next when we would be able to travel again. So very COVID inspired. Uh, and she put a call out on Chief for people who wanted to write about that. And again, I have a complete background. I did a lot of writing in school. I've never kind of done writing as a, a leisure activity. But I, um, I probably call it signed up in March or something and told her I'll do this. And it wasn't until I got laid off. And it was very soon after I got laid off that I was like, oh, I have free time. I'm going to finally write this blog post. Um, and so once I wrote this blog post, which was about uh, Chengdu, China, uh, which is in Sichuan province, which is where my husband is from and which has the most amazing food in the world, uh, I, I wrote that and I posted it on LinkedIn and I saw the engagement on that. And I, I have posted very minimally and usually just like resharing other things or liking things. And, and I saw the engagement. I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. Like people actually like react to things that you post when, when they resonate. Um, and so I think from there I was like, Oh, I should try to do this more and, and write about different things. Uh, and I have a former colleague who was like, you're not writing about food anymore. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll get back to that. So. Yeah, I understand you're a big fan of the, the food. And from my <laughs> recollection, the, the, the Sichuan cuisine is very spicy. Yes, a, a numbing spice. <laughs> hey, you mentioned Chief. And one of the areas that, I, as I mentioned in, in, in your introduction, that you're really passionate about is supporting other women in technology through mentoring. And you're part of a number of organizations that do that, mm -hmm. which sounds like it was partly inspired by your, I'm just going to yeah. say yes to any, every, everything, is, is sort of help with that. You know, what was it, though, about this particular cause of, of helping other women in technology that made you want to commit and invest so much energy into it? That's a good question. And of the, the three uh, kind of mentoring programs that you mentioned, it's actually coincidentally a New Zealand company, uh, One Up, One Down, that's a startup that I was introduced to um, from a colleague here in New York. Also, it's it's really funny to think back on, on like the path that I've had in terms of networking. So it's somebody I reached out to when I left Gigia back in 2017. I met her, learned about her journey we got back together this year, she had met one up one down all of you know, and she had only done it from the perspective of, like filling out the survey to help one up one down in their discovery of how do we launch a mentorship platform? How do we differentiate? Um, and I really just liked the team there. Uh, and I, I also filled out the survey, but then became involved. And I think it was just that first uh, experience mentoring in that kind of uh, structure was just a very rewarding experience. Obviously, I'm in New York, one Up, One Down is in New Zealand. I got a, a mentee who was in Finland. Um, and I really learned just how 
one, how rewarding it is to, to help uh, another woman uh, kind of figure out her path. Um, and then also just how much I would learn in the process. And I think uh, the, the mentee that I had after that was even more of a situation where I was like, should I be the mentee? Are you the mentor? <laughs> um, so it really is just a symbiotic relationship where everybody has really a lot to gain from it. And for, for women in technology that are listening to, to this mm -hmm. podcast, what um, does that mentor-mentee relationship look like? What's the sort of summary there? Yeah, it's also interesting um, because the formats, like when you work through these organizations, the formats vary widely. Um, mm -hmm. But I think at the core of it, um, it's typically an hour of your time once a month for three months. Um, and it really is about, you know, both of you have to put in effort or it's not going to be very valuable. And it's really about the mentee thinking about what they want to accomplish in that time um, based on the goals that they have currently uh, in their jobs or in their careers and uh, the the skill set uh, and experience that the mentor has and taking time during that first session to figure out, uh, you know, what, what aligns here and, and how can we work together and how can the mentor really help you? Um, and so I, I think that's the foundation is, is having those goals and, and creating a path together. Um, and then the specifics uh, can vary quite a bit. Mm -hmm. In, in your own journey, what role have mentors played for you? So, yeah, I, um, I've i never had like a formal uh, mentor-mentee relationship, uh, but I do have a couple of folks who stand out in my mind as, you know, those critical people within my career. Um, and so the first is actually the product manager who owned the product that I ran the beta program for from the account management side. Um and so he was the first product manager that I saw doing product. And so that was uh, really my model for, for a long time. And he and I stay in touch to this day and, and much more so when I was still in Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, we would meet up and, and talk through product. And so just that was the first point at which, you know, just having somebody who whom I really trust, who knows what they're doing, that I can go to and ask questions and kind of navigate different situations as they come up. Um, and then the, the other person that stands out was actually my boss at Gigio when I first got hired who helped move me into a, a product uh, capacity. And he, he as well, that was more from a, from a business perspective, less in the functional areas, but more how he navigated the organization. He actually made the switch from product into client services and, and thinking about how different functional areas work together and how those different career paths look. And um, mm. so, yeah, it's, you know, now I, I have a lot more kind of Peer, peer networking where we rely on each other, but those two people really stand out as like, if I need something or I, I really don't know what I'm doing, then, then that's who I'm going to call. Mm, it's interesting hearing about those two people in your career being both men. Mm -hmm. I remember, I mean, not no value judgment here, but I think it is, if you look at the uh, statistics, I believe 23% of executive roles in America are held by women. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, you think about the opposite of that, they're held by men largely. Yeah. But what has it been like being an executive woman in technology operating in a largely male-dominated upper hierarchy? Uh, yeah, it's definitely been uh, a situation where you're you're the only woman or, or maybe you're one of two women or maybe it's you and, like, the executive assistant, who's the other woman in the room. Um, so I've always been very, very conscious of like being the only woman and very conscious of um, 
just kind of how, how, what women are included in or not included in. And, you know, a, a lot of companies have an issue where you have like the top tier of the executive team that reports into the CEO. And then there's this nebulous senior leadership that's ill-defined and different people will be included in different things and also seeing like the relationship of men and women in kind of that level. So, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, historically there's been a lot of trouble with, you know, women, women who are at the top, enjoy that space at the top and having that to themselves. And so really shifting that and trying to empower other women. Um, like there was one, for example, who was, you know, in that senior leadership level at a company that I was at and, and she wasn't being included in meetings. And I, I told her, I was like, just, just raise your hand and tell them you want to be there and, and you'll probably go. And she was like, no, if they're not going to invite me, then I'm not going to go. And so I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of different philosophies around this, but these things are, are not, not necessarily going to get handed to us. And so we really do have to raise our hands for ourselves, but also advocate for others. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's this soft exercise, exercising of power. It sounds like, you know, the excluding people from meetings and mm -hmm. are there any other behaviors given you've walked this path and you're now, you know, in senior leadership, are there any other things other than ask, you know, asking to be um, included in meetings that you think that women in tech that are on the ascent need to be mindful of or can use to help navigate some of these um, patriarchal uh, constructs that still exist in a lot of organizations? Yeah, I think it, it's a really good question. And I think it, it does have to do uh, with alliances. And, and something that this calls to mind is just, you know, a lot of people ask, how to get into product management if, if you're not already a product manager. And it's this idea of it's a lot easier to enter an organization in a different functional area and work your way into product than it is to come in from the outside and say, I'm going to have a product role. So I think similarly for women who are trying to work their way up, it is what are those alliances? Who, who are the, the senior women that you can talk to within your organization who can not only mentor you in a general sense, but also in navigating this specific context? Um, it's it's also those alliances with people who who aren't women, but it's it's being very conscious of like demonstrating what it is that you're capable mm. of, taking on new opportunities, um, and just really being being good at what you do, and not being shy about making sure that that people are aware of the things that you're doing. And I think people also just take for granted. You know, people may think it's it's like an arrogance, but there's also just this active communication that people like knowing what's going on. And if you happen to to be able to do that um, or be responsible for what's going on, then that's only going to benefit you. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important for leaders to raise up their people. And it's, you know, if my team is doing something amazing, even if I end up presenting it for whatever reason, then, you know, all of those people get named. It's not going to be this is what I did, or even this is what the generic product team did. There, there are specific people who, who need to get that recognition or they'll mm. get passed over. What, what can men do to help? Well, it's tough. Like the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, is to, to not treat women differently. Um, but I do think that there is a, there is something to making a conscious effort to empower women. And it's similar with, all kinds of, um, you know, employee resource groups and things like that. I mean, I, we don't, we're a small company, so we don't have that right now. But um, if you're making that conscious effort to uh, recruit for differing levels of diversity, I'm not going to say that, that I'm diverse in the sense that there are, that 
there really are underrepresented minorities, but you, you have to be uh, deliberate about the initiatives that you're raising. So it, it all starts from, from the hiring, the culture that you have, um, you know, hiring and elevating women and underrepresented minorities is going to engender more people being interested in your organization. And so I think there is this, this flywheel effect. Um, but I think it, it is like making conscious decisions to, to include women, to elevate women, um, and, and also to, to hire in that way. Mm -hmm. So thinking about COVID and the impact that COVID's had on the work environment, how do you look at this and its potential impacts for women in the professions? It's interesting. So I, I am married, but I do not have children. And the experience of COVID, uh, particularly in our extended lockdowns here in the States, um, the experience for women and, and some men uh, who have children is, is totally different. And it's, there's a lot more that you have to deal with uh, in terms of like being able to do your job and be able to take care of your child and to make sure that you're child is able to do their schooling from home. Um, and so I think one of the, the biggest things um, is just the, the acceptance of that. I think early on, there were a lot of women who were posting with, you know, their kids on Zoom and just like the, the acceptance of that. And if there's noise in the background, people get that. Um, but I think uh, perhaps the, the more things have changed for you during COVID, kind of the harder it is to go back. I think, I think remote work, needs to be here to stay. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk around, you know, when people are going to go back to the office, obviously major tech companies and some other companies saying, you know, we're work from home or, or remote first forever. Um, I think companies have to think long and hard about the, uh, the implications of remote work and the implications of taking away the flexibility that people have had for a year. Um, you know, my team is, is constantly asking me, like, are we going back to the office? Do we have to go back to the office? And, you know, we've been remote for a year and the company hasn't fallen apart. We're doing something right. And so it's hard to say, oh, well, now we need to go back because, you know, everybody's proven that they can make this work. Mm, it's been such a circuit breaker and it's really disrupted a lot of closely held beliefs about what work needs to look like. Mm -hmm. And a lot more trust seems to have flown um, both ways between employers and employees, which I, I feel has been overall quite positive. Yeah. And to your point about women in particular, I think it is people with these different circumstances that are going to be impacted more or less negatively by the decision to mm. uh, force people back to work if that's what happens. Perhaps a few people have developed some greater empathy as to mm -hmm. what it's like to try and juggle uh, family life and professional life. Absolutely. So changing, changing gears here and thinking about your time at Gigya, which was what seems like a, a phenomenal time. You know, you were promoted to VP of products, I think within four or so years of joining the company. How did it feel to get that position, to, to be in that role? <laughs> uh, it, was, it was actually quite a shock. I had uh, moved, so I was in Silicon Valley when I started at Gigya. We had our sales and marketing headquarters in California product development headquarters in Tel Aviv. And in the middle of 2013, I'd moved back to New York. I got married. Uh, my husband got a job here. I'd always wanted to move back to New York. Um, and so I was working remotely. Um, I, we didn't have an office in New York. I didn't have coworkers in New York. Um, 
And about nine months into that, which is probably, you know, six months before I got promoted, I had told our CEO who, whom I reported to, like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to work from home. I need to get into an office. And, and so at the time, I was actually working from first round capitals offices in Union Square in New York, uh, because they were an investor in Gigia. And, um, our, and then our president gave me a call one day. He was our co-founder um, and he also was like the de facto head of product. And he just like all of a sudden on this call is like, I think you should be VP. <laughs> and so it was like both in the in the promotion, but also in the delivery. Um, and it was like very out of the blue. Um, so it was, it was just like a very exciting time. And I was like, oh, is this real? And, you know, what does this mean? Like I'm in New York, the team is in Israel. At that time I was like really the customer facing side of product. I had a technical director counterpart in, in Tel Aviv. So then there are all the questions of, oh, is he going to report to me? Like, is he going to be okay with that? How's this going to work? Um, you know, I've only managed teams of like a handful of people. And now you're asking me to, to manage 15 people. So there were a lot of layers to, to the reaction. I think the primary one was just being really excited um, and then getting past the excitement to be like, how do I, how do I do this? I've never even been a product manager, like in the, in the sense of, of running a squad and working directly with developers. So like, how do, how does this work? So let's talk about that. So you find yourself in this VP position for good, for good reason. You have the excitement of being in that position. And then you, it sounds like you had the realization of I've got to figure some things out. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what were the um, things that you needed to master or build on that, that you realized were going to be critical for success in that role? Yeah, um, I think that the first area that I focused on was how to work with the team in Israel. Um, and so that was like priority number one. At that point, it was me and I may have had like a couple of people who were based in California and then this director in Tel Aviv who ran the entire product org. And, and so it was like figuring out those dynamics and then also figuring out, okay, you know, he's the technical product manager. He's worked, you know, in startups doing software development and product. And, you know, I've, I've had a couple jobs, but this is like my first time working in product, all of these things. And so what do I bring to the table and, and what does he bring to the table and how do we make that work together? Um, and so that was the real key. Like he was, he was the technical person. I was the one with the customer service background, you know, in Israel, we didn't have clients and we had very limited like customer facing employees. So they were very far removed. And so it actually became my campaign as VP to like up level the entire product team and get them in front of customers. Um, and not have everything funneled through me. Like, I, I mean, a, a big part of the reason why I was promoted was because I was so close to customers and understood them, but it, it didn't make any sense. Like I didn't, especially as VP, but it didn't need to funnel through me and they, they could do that work and they were going to be better at their jobs from doing that work. So I think that was the, the biggest initiative. So you've been through that experience and you've held more leadership positions since what has the greatest learning being for you as a leader? What what has leadership taught you about yourself? Oh, how to let go. I think when <laughs> I was first, around that time when I was VP, I also ended up hiring somebody who was a senior director with many years of experience, many years more than I had. Um, and it was, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I 
I was not set up for success in, in leading this person um, and really understanding like their value and that their value didn't detract from my value. Um, and so thinking back to when I first came into a VP role, I, I was definitely micromanaging too much, trying to stay too close to, th- to things um, and, and feeling like, well, if I don't stay this close, then how do I know things are happening? Mm. Um, and so from then to now, you know, six and a half, seven years later, um, it's, it's just totally different. And I've, I've completely flipped that in terms of giving my team space and, you know, the proof is in the the work that they're putting out there and and supporting them and being better at their jobs without having to know all of the the minutiae of their day to day. So for people that are listening, they might get that they'll understand letting go, delegating, trusting your team. But are there any particular practices that you put in place as a leader to help you feel less anxious about stepping back and enable that trust uh, and that relationship to develop positively? I have to say that like my time at Building Link has given me an opportunity to like really take a greenfield space. We're transforming. We haven't had a formalized product organization prior to 2020. Um, and, and I've come into a team of very collaborative, curious, like growth minded people. And, um, and it's been, it's been amazing. And so I've been able to institute all of these different practices. Um, And I think, I think the biggest, the biggest thing is letting the team come to me. We we have our one-on-ones, they have the time to come to me. We we talk about um, coaching and the areas that they want to focus on and how I'm helping them. Um, if they have roadblocks or concerns or, or whatever the case may be, they'll, they'll bring those to that session. And um, between that and kind of the, also the, the team meeting that we have where kind of everybody gets together and we are working on different areas, whether it's introducing OKRs or prioritization frameworks or, or how we're going to handle experimentation um, and then elevating the product team within the org. So like really knowing that my role is to let them do their thing and to show the rest of the company what they're doing and how effective they are and how well they're transforming and, and give them voices to engage at the all hands, engage with training and support with sales. Um, so it's kind of that two-sided piece of, of being there enough for them that they know I'm here if, if they need me, um, and then spending my time to kind of evangelize for us across the organization. Mm. What was it about building Link? It's a, a property property tech, is that the right term, mm-hmm. company? Right. Yeah, so what was it about your move out of Silicon Valley tech into property tech? Um, and, and in particular, building look, you know, why did you choose to work there? Yeah, so when I left Gigia uh, around the time we got acquired in 2017, I decided that I didn't want to work in that specific space um, in identity tech or even security or, or whatever the case may be. And I took time off to figure out what I wanted to do. And that's where I developed this interest in built world tech. So um, consulting in real estate tech. And then also uh, spent some time in mobility and then HANA and now Building Link. And I think Building Link is really interesting because I perceived myself as like a startup leader of product, um, that I would be the first product hire coming in, maybe a Series B startup. Um, And then I found Building Link and Building Link is a 20-year-old family business. That's kind of the size and maturity of a Series B startup. And I had the experience at Gigia of... uh, kind of rebuilding the platform, moving over to microservices, dealing with all of the tech debt we had built up over the course of, of our lifetime. So um, 
Building Link just gave me this really great opportunity to stay in real estate tech, which is really interesting, to move into residential real estate, which is much more future-proof than uh, commercial right now. Um, and then also to take something where we have over 5,000 buildings and over millions, a couple million residents that we have this so much fodder for doing customer discovery and understanding while also building the platform for the future. So it was just a confluence of a lot of different things. And I think my, how great my team is, is just like the bonus on top of that, that I didn't really know going in that I would get that. Yeah. You never really know for sure going in. So it's mm -hmm. great to hear that that's the case. Mm -hmm. You've seen product management practice at many, well, several companies now, right? You've mm -hmm. seen it in the Silicon Valley security tech style. And now you're, you're, I think, seven or eight months into building Link. How, how do these practices, if at all, differ between those remarkably uh, different industries? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a bit, I think about it changing more over time than, than by industry. So when I was at Gigia, um, I think about a year after I became VP, we migrated from Waterfall to Agile. And so it's kind of crazy to think that it wasn't until 2015 that we were doing that. Um, and we did have a very technology-led organization. And there was a question of, like, will our product owners be the product managers or the tech leads? Um, and so I've definitely seen... So I have seen different organizations, obviously, like there are technology led organizations and sales led organizations. So I've seen a lot of, of different flavors of that. And, you know, whether even the technology organizations are product led or engineering led. <clears throat> um, and so I think that's like for me coming into building like and having this green field where we can make it product led. Um, and the CTO that I've been working with since I came on board um, was also very product led. And I think um yeah, so each organization is different, and I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to, to parse out, um, you know, whether it's it's industry or location or, you know, year in our history um, that would uh, indicate different paths of product mm. and how product is run. So let's pick up on the term you used there, product-led. Mm -hmm. What does the nirvana of a product-led organization look like? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I feel like it's very cliche at this point to to reference Marty Kagan, um, but I think that at this point, um, inspired really is the, the closest thing there is to the guidebook of of what product led product management and product led organizations look like. Um, and it really is around empowering the team, and and this is something we spend a ton of time on that we're not just delivering from the CEO or the founder or the CTO, like hear all of the features, like go build these. It's really understanding how we, how we are connecting our work to the business and understanding the problems that we're trying to solve, the outcomes that we're trying to drive and figuring out um, the best solutions for those. Um, and so we're going through this process right now of kind of theme-based roadmaps where we're not tying ourselves down to the specifics of what we're going to do, but giving the organization an idea of um, the areas that we'll be focusing on and why. Mm. Um, and I think it is that that gets people excited about the work that they're doing, along with this kind of like dual track discovery, uh, dual track agile with discovery and delivery, where they, they are getting in front of customers a lot. And it's not just, you know, the tactical execution with the, the developers, but the developer and the designer are with them through that whole process of um, engaging with customers, um, figuring things out and, and then moving to execution. 
Yeah, dual track agile is something that I'm a big fan of, and I, I speak with a lot of product organisations. And I, what I have observed anyway from from those conversations has been the role that structure plays in um, disempowering teams to operate um, that dual track agile model, where, for example, you may have engineering as under a separate VP to product to design. What have you observed in terms of structure that has enabled better product practices to evolve? So I think the biggest hindrance to uh, a product-led organization is a product org reporting into a CTO. Um, and so as a product leader, that's always a red flag when you're looking for a new role and, and you see that product is tied up into engineering. Um, it's interesting, though, because everybody talks about this tripod of product design engineering. Uh, but it's so often that design reports into product. And I think, and right now design reports into me. Um, and I, I think, I think it's fine for now, but there is this question of like, why shouldn't design also have its own leadership, which of course, in some organizations it does. Um, but I think placing equal weight on each of those, it's like checks and balances and, and all of that, um, is really important. Um, and, and making sure that everybody is aligned on, on the why behind what we're doing. Mm. So as a, a product organization, as a leader or a manager of product, you sometimes have to make decisions based on incomplete or imperfect information. And mm -hmm. those decisions can have you know quite far reaching consequences. What level of risk are you comfortable with when making decisions about the future of the product? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one that we talk about a lot. Um, I actually just sent my team today the, the Jeff Bezos concept of like a one way door versus a two way door and what's a, a decision that you can't reverse versus one that you can. Um, mm -hmm. And it is all about prioritizing the risk and understanding the, the impact of the risk. Like, if we're wrong about this, then then what's going to happen? Um, and just being comfortable with like, there there's a threshold there. And it doesn't it doesn't make sense to to over research um, and things like that. And sometimes you just, you just need to move forward. Um, but it really is just evaluating like what the impact of the risk is and, and whether you can undo it if you have to. Mm. And what's the greatest risk to the success of a product? It's <sighs> a good question. Uh, sorry, some, sorry about all that question. <laughs> something around that you're, you know, that you're not, you're not building the right thing and you're not building it in the right way. Um, and that you, I think it, it is something around like really under, like really understanding what your customers need and what they're going to value and what is going to drive the business forward rather than the thing that like sounds really cool to build or that, mm -hmm. you know, you're unproven gut thinks would be really great for, for your customers, particularly when, when you are not a customer of your own product. Yeah, really important to remember. But let, so let's get into that. Like, what does that look like? How do you help people to understand that and to build the, the customer uh, into the product management process better? Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it is, um, we're trying to get to this and we're not there yet, but in terms of just, and I've started to ask the team more like, what did you learn from customers this week? Because we really want folks spending time every week getting in front of customers. And because we're working on these major initiatives and, and redesigning and rebuilding our platform, there is a lot of like the big, like heavy upfront discovery that's happening. Um, which is great, but then it's like, once you get started, what are you doing to validate? What are you doing to look back? And so, um, 
we have this joke that, you know, when, when you're demoing every two weeks, like, do you have an answer for, um, all the questions that you get asked? Like, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And like really pushing yourselves to, um, have talked to customers and done the testing and set things up in a way that, that you have that justification. And maybe the justification is, well, it was, it was lightweight and it made more sense to release it and then test, but, but that you have, you have that, uh, reasoning, but a big part of that is that you are getting in front of customers often enough that you're, you're constantly, um, got checking and and just getting to know your customers better. I think one of the biggest detriments for me coming into building link during COVID is that, uh, you know, we work with onsite staff in residential properties and it would be a really great learning experience to actually go and sit and observe and (laughs) the ethnographic aspects of the study to like, see how they operate every day. Um, and I have heard anecdotes from the team that's done this in the past. Um, but that, that is a big part of like, I think a day, the day in the life is something that you cannot get through any conversation or you, you, you can't get what it's really like until, until you're there. Yeah. Let's just uh, spare a thought for all those ethnographers out there that are <laughs> probably pulling their hair out, not being able to do the things that they love to do. And that are so valuable in shaping that, that view of the problem and, and also playing a role in shaping the solution as well. Absolutely. How much, how much of, what we're talking about here with enabling dual track agile, you know, getting closer to customer, building up that empathy, but also, you know, true insight into what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. How much of this has to do with the organization's culture? Oh, it's huge. I mean, I think one of the biggest impediments to product managers getting in front of customers is sales or leadership being like, no, 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 like you can't get in front of customers, which you hear all the time, especially like, you know, interviewing product managers, like you hear the different experiences they have. Um, and so that's, that's number one, that the organization has to be open to product being experts on the customers, just as the customer facing teams are experts on the product. Um, and, and yeah, I think there's also, uh, that's, that's a big hindrance. There's also um, folks just not being on board with outcomes over outputs and, and not being able to separate this concept of like, this, this is the list of features that we, we need to develop and release um, and being able to let go of that and, and to be able to um, invest time in research, to invest time in testing and experimentation. Um, so we're, we're very lucky at Building Link that the whole organization is, is very bought into the, the change to being a product-led organization that we're trying to affect. Um, but there are certainly a lot of hurdles um, if the organization is not behind that. Yeah, it makes a big difference. <laughs> Looking at your recent LinkedIn posts, I noticed that you have been conducting a North Star exercise recently with the team. What is that? What is a North Star for people that don't know? And why is that something that you have uh, decided to, to bring into building Link? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I, so first of all, a North Star it is what it sounds like in the general sense of like, what is that metric that we are trying to drive toward? Um, but in a more specific sense, and we're doing it in the context of um, Amplitude, which is a product analytics firm and the, the framework that they've released. Um, it is the way to tie the work that we are doing, the direct outputs 
um, that we can drive through the product. So you release something and these are things that you can track and see that you're affecting change. And the North Star is then connecting that to the downstream um, business goals of reducing churn, increasing sales, et cetera, with the idea that the initial outputs as soon as you release are leading indicators of those very lagging indicators of um, churn and, and revenue and such. And for us, when I came in, um, we were looking at strategic intents for the first time, um, and there were some goals around how much to increase uh, sales in condo market or reduce uh, churn in the rental market. And the team was just like, how do I know that anything I'm doing is going to impact any of these numbers? Um, and so, you know, as with any shiny object, the, the North Star provides this this possibility that we can effectively tie the work that the product team is doing every day to those business outcomes. Um, and so that's, that's why I wanted to explore it with the team and get them thinking about what, what is that North star? What does it mean for building link to be successful? What is that, that key evidence that the things that we are doing are really driving value for our customers such that we can, we can sell to new customers. These customers are going to stay with us for a long time um, and all of that. And so that, that's why we decided to do it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'll be keen to hear how you get on with it and how it's uh, mm -hmm. affecting the direction of the product at a later date. Yeah. Are you, up, are you up for some rapid fire questions? Sure. All right, let's do it. So these are scenario based questions and really just drawing on your own experience and expertise. Okay. The, the first one is you're hiring a product manager to be your right hand and to manage a critical area of the existing product. What do you look for in that person? Yeah, well, I'm right in the thick of that. So um, <laughs> it's interesting for me, a product manager is somebody who is curious, smart, detail or detail oriented uh, and has good time management. Like if they have this basic set of criteria, then they will be successful as a product manager, um, depending on the level of ambiguity and how much actual experience I need them in the trenches, um, then I would have to vet for those, those other things of specific experience. But those, those four criteria are key. Cool. You're getting bombarded with requests from the sales organization for features. They say that millions of dollars of future revenue are at stake if they aren't delivered. How do you respond? Also, also happening. Um, and <laughs> uh, one of the biggest things is communicating the roadmap and just kind of the vision and the goals that we are focused on right now. And so, you know, if we're focused on like the modernization of the current platform and you want to build us, you want us to build something new, that's, that's not going to meet. And so the biggest thing for product managers is to communicate. Um, if you think that you've said it too many times, maybe people have started to hear you. Um, and, and just being really transparent of like, okay, we're not doing this, but we are doing this and it's valuable to you because. Got it. You're fresh into your first role as VP of product. The CEO asks you to prepare a strategy and present that strategy for the product to the board. Where do you start? So when I when I was interviewed at, at Building Link, we actually did a day of interviews with people where I had uh, basically to come up with the strategy based on a mission statement and, and some thinking from, from the leadership team. Um, and so it always is talking to 
key stakeholders and learning as much as you can and understanding what the goals are and then connecting the two. You've got a rock star engineer in one of your product teams who refuses to adhere to the same expectations and norms as the rest of the team. How do you bring them on side? Yeah, so uh, in, in my capacity as a leader where I'm not actually on the squad, um, so it's it's always trying to get the squads to self-organize first. So, you know, that this is something that, you know, will come up in a one-on-one -on -one with uh, the product manager, so talking through with them and role playing different ways um, that they can get the person on board, just depending on the specifics of of how they're operating, um, and then sometimes depending on on how that goes and what they're able to take back to the team, um, it could be a team lead, product manager, leadership, um, and this person, you know, coming together and and talking it through. And the last one is you've got two attractive directions that you could take the product down, but you can only choose one. How do you choose? Research. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're actually in this position right now where we have a specific goal that we are going after. We have a couple of different opportunities that, that we can pursue. Um, and so it's, you know, what's the highest value research we can do in the shortest period of time to understand um, the size of the opportunity and the value to to our customers and the level of effort to execute um, and also kind of like the near-term and long-term value and take it from there. Makes a lot of sense. So just bringing us down to the close now, if you were going to be in a position to get a message out to all women who are considering a career in technology, what would that message be? do it. I think the most important thing is uh, to not be, if there is anything that is discouraging you to, to not listen to it. Um, and you can find people on LinkedIn or elsewhere, reach out to them. Plenty of people will, will hear you out and, and give you advice. Um, and of course, then there are all these mentorship opportunities as well that you can come in as a mentee. So. Hmm. What a wonderful conversation, Marissa. It's been full of insights. Thank you for so generously sharing those with us today. It's going to make a big difference to the community. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brendan. Yeah, you're a great role model for women, and I really am looking forward to publishing this. For people that are, are listening to this episode and uh, interested in finding out more about you, what is the best way that they can do that? Mm, probably find me on LinkedIn. Great. We'll put a link to your profile in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Don't hesitate to reach out. Wonderful. Thanks, Marissa. And to anyone else that is listening, I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show. If um, you're interested in any of the resources or finding Marissa or any other things that we've covered today, those will be posted in the show notes on YouTube. If you enjoy the show and you want to hear more of these great conversations with world-class leaders, then please uh, subscribe to the podcast, give us a comment, um, give us any feedback. We're always keen to hear it. And until next time, everybody, keep being brave. <laughs>